could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Greber, and alongside me is Logan Camden, and today we are about 10 days away from the end of the NBA regular season and the beginning of a majestic postseason that we are very excited to talk about with you all. So that means we've got a bunch of important stuff to get through as these next couple weeks progress, but today we're going to take this last chance to really focus on the teams who are towards the bottom of the league. So today is our little tankathon takeaway special where we're just going to be focused on the bad teams, guys who we like, who we have seen sprout up from some of those organizations, some interesting things that are going on with those teams. And then after this, we promise we'll focus on what's going on with the Lakers and all the other interesting playing and playoff and award stuff. But we got to get this out of our system first because Logan this is a huge portion of the league. We're talking 10 plus teams pretty much that are in that tank mode and a lot of interesting stuff is happening with them. Maybe not 10 plus this year actually, but still at least a handful. So let's just start with you. What is your first tank takeaway from this home stretch of the season? Well, I'm going to start with a team that we didn't expect to be in this situation at all, Carson, in the, you know, in this, in the tank portion of the league. Uh, I think the Toronto Raptors are down bad way worse than people realize, Carson. And uh, and I'll give a few reasons why. First off, Kyle Lowry is a free agent this season, and I think they should have dealt him at the trade deadline, even if they bring him back next season. Whatever value they recoup for him, because I anticipate him being traded, I don't think he's going to want to be in a losing situation. They're not going to get as much value as they would have this year, or he could just possibly walk in free agency. So one, you're losing your best player in Kyle Lowry, and you aren't going to get top value. Um, Gary Trent Jr. is also a free agent this offseason who they traded for. They gave up Norman Powell to acquire. Trent's been great here in Toronto, 16 on 41-36 shooting splits since joining Toronto. He's a great catch and shooter, but he also could leave this offseason. You could also, again, lose value. Um, and then Chris Boucher is up after 2022. He has been a real bright spot this season as a floor-spacing rim protector. 16 points per game on 54-38 shooting splits on the last 15. So... There are guys that could leave here, but the big thing here is I don't even like the guys under contract, Carson, whatsoever. OG Ananobi is locked up through 2025, and he's been great in the last 15, putting up 25-3. and He's in the 87th percentile in defensive points per possession. He's great at getting into lanes, uh, making big plays on that end. Uh, He's uh, he's just a great defender, but some people seem to think, and by some people I mean Raptors fan Peyton T. Gallagher. Peyton thinks that OG has this huge playmaking ceiling that he's going to turn into this, uh, you know, top 30 player in the NBA. I don't have that ceiling for OG. I think he's, he could be a contributing three and D wing on a winning team like he was, but he's not going to be a real game breaking talent. But the big thing here is I don't like Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet together, Carson. And I just think that the Raptors have mismanaged and built their core around two pieces that just don't fit together. Both they're both negatives on on the defensive end. I will stick by that. Um, as the Raptors have well-documented, Siakam has not been, he's not been in the same mindset since coming to Tampa, uh, since sadly the passing away of his father. Pascal has not looked like the same basketball player, and I also just think he's still raw, man. He didn't pick up a basketball until he was in his teens. He's, I just don't really like Pascal Siakam's game, and I don't think he's a guy who can really drive winning at a high level. He's not a great facilitator. He's a decent shooter. He's a decent scorer. He's got a decent bag of moves in the mid-range, and Freddie Buckets is a buck, but he's limited as well. I just I just don't think that Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet can drive winning together or by themselves, and I think the Raptors are going to be in this no-man's land, you know, where the Knicks were for the past decade. I just think they're going to be stuck being good, but they're going to be good, but not good enough to make a genuine championship push, but they're not going to be bad enough to get a top draft pick. I'm sorry, uh, that's where I the just, Knicks have been for the past decade? I feel like the Knicks have been really, really bad for the past decades. <laughs> I feel like the Knicks have been bad enough to where now that they're a pretty good team, it feels like they've won four titles in a row. <laughs> okay, well, the lotto didn't fall in the Knicks' uh, odds either way, but they're just they're stuck in no man's land, man. That they're not a championship. I'm sorry, I should have said like the Pacers or the Magic. My fault. They're they're just in the middle, and I think that's where they're going to be for the next five seasons. It's not the worst place to be, but. Um, they're just not going to draw that top. Uh, I don't think they're going to get a star. I don't think they get any top draft picks, and they're really going to have to hit their back end, of their middle of the first round picks to really become true contenders again. Look, I'm not going to tolerate any slander 
of Freddie Van Vliet's defense, all right? In no world is that guy a minus on that end. He is a dog. He is a playmaker. And yeah, maybe he doesn't have crazy physical tools, but at the end of the day, he has everything else that you would need to be a high-level defensive player. But I think I agree with your sentiment in a lot of ways. The reason I just don't think that they're permanently screwed, per se, is because they're so good at just finding those diamonds in the rough and turning anybody into a productive NBA player. And interestingly enough, that was actually my first takeaway, was that the Raptors' ability to develop that talent and just their cultural stability and getting guys to come in and play hard and produce is pretty much undefeated because what I think is fascinating is they're 12 and 8 without Kyle Lowry on the year. They're 15 and 31 when he plays, 12 and 8 without him. And I think that that is just reflective of the fact that they maybe play exceptionally hard in his absence and they have guys who can just step up and produce. I love a lot of these guys who we are seeing right now. And I don't think that that's necessarily more important than any of the things you pointed out about Van Vliet or Siakam because. Siakam is just in such a bad place right now, and I feel for him, and I hope the next year is different, but I don't think I've ever seen a star-level guy who is so easily sped up, who is so flustered, it seems like, in every significant situation, who is so limited in some ways as a scorer. Like, some of the turnovers he has in big moments, it's just complete, like, his mind goes blank, and that just doesn't happen for other star-level guys, and Freddie was just never meant to have to be the best perimeter player offensively on a team. He had the luxury of being, obviously, on their title team, a great sixth man. And then last year, he was a really good third guy. And now it's like, okay, Freddie, sometimes we need you to go out there and be our premier scorer and playmaker. And I don't think he's equipped to do that. But I do still like what we've seen from Toronto. And that's why I'll kind of always have faith in this organization is there's just so many smart people in one place. I still think Nick Nurse is brilliant. I still think Masai Ujiri is brilliant. And I think that last year, honestly, showed us how much they can compel a team that did not have elite talent by contender standards to that elite status. I love Malachi Flynn, as we've talked about, just averaged 13-5 and five on 41% from three in April. I think the guy is a future starter, no question. The poise out of the pick and roll, the ability to change pace, the pure shot making, the passing, it's all there with him. I think even guys like Yuta Watanabe, very interestingly shows some flashes. Logan, you can shake your head, man, but 6'9", fluid, can handle, can shoot 41% from three. Like, yeah, he's not going to be a significant player. He's 26 years old. But look, this is the Tankathon episode, okay? Not everybody I talk about is going to be a significant player. I just think it's impressive that they find guys like that and they make them moderately productive. Ken Birch, a favorite of yours, has been really good since joining Toronto, putting up 11-8 on 59% from the field. And I think has even shown some more skill in his offensive game than we saw in Orlando. And that's what really has been exciting to me because previously I was like, okay, he's a smart player. He's a guy who's going to produce on the defensive end who will have some simplistic value as that rim runner kind of guy offensively. But we've seen him really utilize the floater. And we really saw it last night against the Clippers where he just gets that soft spot like 12, 15 feet out and then throws it up. It's a little Rashawn Holmes-esque. He's shooting in the mid-40s on that on the year. He's 6 of 17 from three. And yeah, I think he's like 28. So that's not going to matter long term. But I still think it's impressive. A guy like DeAndre Bembry isn't different from what he was in Atlanta, per se. But he just plays hard. And I think that that's something that a lot of people in Toronto do. So, you're right. Long term, there are probably more things to be concerned about than to be excited about in Toronto. But to me, when I'm watching a team that is not even trying to win games, they're not playing a couple of their best guys. I mean, we haven't seen Gary Trent for a good amount of games. We haven't seen OG. We haven't seen Lowry. Those guys kind of just come and go as they please and have quote-unquote injuries. Who knows how legitimate that is? In spite of that, they're still able to compete with really good teams, and I think that that is just about the ability to, again, get the best out of everybody, and that is something that will always bode well for you as a franchise. I mean, do you think that it's downhill from here? Do you think next year is worse than this year was? Because I definitely do not. I don't think so. I mean... I'm hoping that Siakam will have his head on straight. Um, I think Malachi Flynn, as you touched on, I think he's going to develop into a really good starting point guard for this roster. I'm just, I just don't know if we ever see them in that championship conversation for a long time. And maybe that's yeah. not the worst thing. I think they're going to be a, they're going to be a competent team next season. I just think from, from where they were, it's been a down return. I do want to touch on, man, you know what Tom Bay's mid, dude. Don't even, don't even try to sell the audience, man. He's, He's an average offensive player, and he's a clueless defender. That's my issue with Yuta, man. That man is one of the easiest defenders to just get out of positioning. Um, he's a horrid perimeter defender, dude. Okay. I think you're 
overestimating how good I actually think Yuta is. I just think <laughs> it's impressive that they can play a guy like him 25 minutes a game and get him to produce and actually be competitive in games that, for the other team, mean something. And uh, that's just kind of what they do in Toronto. They just get the best out of everybody. No, Yuta is not going to be a significant contributor on some great team. But I think that considering... He couldn't crack the rotation in Memphis. And it's like, yeah, he's putting up four points a game right now. Okay, so don't get ahead of yourself. But I do think that there are tools there, and I think that he's a skilled player. So, yeah, I'm impressed by what Toronto is able to do, again, while they're basically in tank mode because they're not losing that much. I mean, again, in games without Lowry, they're 12-8. and eight. So it's just you put whoever's out there, and they get the best out of them. So I don't know what's next for Toronto. I think, obviously, they're at sort of a crossroads here and it was probably time to throw in the towel a little bit sooner but they were so great last year that it really seemed implausible to do so and now you're at the point where things aren't looking so great but who knows I just think that when you get OG in there when you get Gary in there you're fully healthy you've got a really talented young core of guys who are 27 or younger when you throw Van Vliet and Siakam into there and I don't think that you can just sit around and be depressed about that throw Malachi Flynn in there too they're in an interesting spot, but I don't think that it's just all darkness and rain clouds and just torture for Raptors fans. Okay, so since I already gave my Raptors take two, let's move on. What is your next Tankathon takeaway? Uh, it's funny. My next takeaway involves uh, Yuta Watanbe in a sense, uh, in that one of the guys uh, on this roster brutally maimed and murdered him uh, on possibly the best dunk of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, my take-a-thon uh, takeaway involves the Timberwolves. And this is a classic Logan take where I take an original Carson take, right, to the moon, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, I, I think the Timberwolves make a genuine playoff push next season. And the main reason I say that is because of the difference uh, we've seen from D'Angelo Russell Coming off of the bench, he's averaged the most bench points uh, per game by any player in the NBA. Well, actually, total and per game over the last 15. 279 points, 18 and a half a night. And I think Anthony Edwards takes this superstar leap uh, next season. I, I don't think we have to wait. I, I think this kid next year is going to be... I think he's going to be a better playmaker. I think he's going to be more dominant in the paint. I think he's going to be a better shooter. I think we're just going to see an all-around improved game. Now... There's a lot of young talent, as Carson touched on in his amazing Timberwolves video. Go check it out. I mean, he touched on Nas Reed, uh, Jaden McDaniels, uh, Leandro Balmaro, you know, all the young guys that they brought in. But I think the biggest thing for the Timberwolves being competitive next season, I think that pick has to hit, Carson. I don't think the Warriors can end up with that pick. I think the Timberwolves have to get it. They have to get somebody else, somebody young and talented in here. If that pick, uh, it's top three, right? So if it goes in the top yep. three, Minnesota gets it. Correct. If Golden State gets that pick, I am not as confident in this take and them making a playoff push. But if they get whoever is at that number four or five spot, I am taking the Timberwolves to easily be in this 10 to 7 range. And I think maybe in a perfect world where everybody stays healthy, where D'Lo commits to this bench role and these young guys progress a little more, I can see them making a genuine push for maybe that six seed, dude. I'm high on the Timberwolves. So... Obviously, I love what the Timberwolves have as a foundation. I made a 20-minute video on it. I think that the thing is, we can't necessarily push them and say, you're going to win immediately, because I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that they're talented enough to get to that point, and I think that the results, when they've been fully healthy, have shown that. They've won six of their last nine games, could have been seven of their last nine, and the offensive firepower is pretty significant right now. I just look at Ant at 19 and think, so talented, but still has so far to go. And I look at Jaden McDaniels, who to me is going to be the third best player on this roster long term. I like him more than D'Lo. I think that that kid is unbelievably gifted. I think he is the pick of the draft right now, honestly, excluding maybe LaMelo Ball going three. But at 25, I believe it was, the kid is just 28. Phenomenally talented, a guy who can play both ends at a high level, who I think has a higher ceiling getting buckets for himself. And I think he shows that at times, but can also just fit into that three and D mold. I'm telling you, man, I have a lot of faith in Jaden McDaniels. So I absolutely agree with this. I guess I'll just ask you a couple follow-up questions. Do you think Malik Beasley matters at all for this team? And you think D'Lo is that long-term sixth man and that's his best role? I think, honestly, both of those guys are kind of interchangeable in this, mm -hmm. in this roster. And I don't mean that in the sense that Beasley's as talented as Russell. I think D'Lo's way more supremely talented. He's a better playmaker. He's got a better handle, but... 
with what they do and what they give to this team, honestly, I think you could give up either one of them and keep a six-man, and I think they'd yeah. both be proficient in that role. Yeah, I kind of think it's one or the other two. I don't think you're starting either of them alongside Ant and Cat. Maybe you could, but I just think it's going to be about getting that true point guard alongside Ant, and Cade Cunningham would be pretty nice for that. And I think... Valid point. Um, no, I'm just thinking about them with Cade. Yeah. At, at my, I started sal- I started salivating <laughs> a little bit. Um, I'm a big Jaden McDaniels guy. Uh, we were both on that train pretty early, dude. I think he's the perfect guy alongside Cat uh, and Ant. If he's just... I mean, honestly, you could say that about a bunch of the Well, yeah, duos, but you start but... five guys. I completely agree. I think that they need that high-level 3 and D guy, and that's what he can be. But you also need someone to start in the backcourt alongside Ant. I know we've touched on this before. If you had the choice, if you're Minnesota, to go between Cade and Mobley, who are you taking? Yeah, I think I would go with Mobley, honestly. I just think that that would be the most ridiculous front court we have seen in quite some time, and I would just take the best player who there is. And I think that it could really work, honestly, with him and Cat, because Cat can so easily be positionless offensively, and Mobley can kind of be positionless defensively. And then it's just up to Cat being able to move his feet well enough on the defensive end, which I think he can do. I think he's shown progress there and in a committed situation could be perfectly fine. So I agree with you. I think there's a lot of intrigue here in Minnesota. Any other thoughts on what the Timberwolves are doing? I just want to ask, in that scenario, was Mobley your primary rim protector? Yes. I mean, he's so much better at it than Cat. And that's interesting just, because then you're... it's kind of unprecedented. Yeah. I think that they could do it. I think that it would be a little weird because you're taking Cat away from the paint, which is probably where he's at his best. But I also think that we've seen him have success coming out to the perimeter a little bit more as of late. Chris Finch has actively tried to get him to do that more, tried to get him to switch out onto the perimeter to show more on screens instead of just dropping back every time. And, uh, you know, he's got some good feet. He's got some good hands. So I think it would be a very interesting experiment, but I think – then you're talking about a defensive superstar in Mobley, an offensive superstar in Cat, and possibly an offensive superstar in Mobley, too. I would not put any ceiling on him there. So we agree. Very much so. Timberwolves are going to be really, really good in a few years. I don't know if it's next year, but it's going to happen. And now it's just about filling out this roster. It's about nailing this pick in this upcoming draft. It's about getting another really good guy on the wings. Maybe that's Bulmaro. Maybe it's somebody else you just acquire through free agency. Because there's a lot to like here. I mean, dude, even if Balmaro comes over and is just a average facilitating playmaker who can just take the pressure off of that bench, it's something that you need, man. I know they need that uh, a facilitating point guard to come in here to really slick the wheels of this offense, but Balmaro will be a really good bench piece, too, if he's just adequate in that role, man. Yeah, he's going to be fascinating to see because I think he does so much really well. The playmaking is just fascinating the ball handling I think is also really impressive but it's going to come down to just knocking down open shots I think and that's going to be really interesting to see if he can do that all right so my second tankathon takeaway here is that Isaac Okoro is utterly fascinating and obviously this was a really interesting pick in the draft going fifth overall to the Cavs I didn't expect him to go quite that high he was one of the guys in the top 10 who I had certainly more questions about I'd say that Obi was my least favorite, and then Okoro was probably my second least favorite. Out of the guys I expected to go top 10, when Patrick Williams was picked, I didn't like him, but he's definitely proved that wrong. I mean, Patrick Williams is a talented kid, but Okoro, I think, has shown some really interesting flashes, and I think that his most recent game against the Suns was the epitome of that. He was amazing. Garland was out. He dropped 32-6, and six, pretty much all with the ball in his hands, like heavy pick-and-roll ball handling, and I think we saw some really impressive bursts from him, some of that quickness, really nice pace out of the pick and roll where he looked comfortable, he wasn't getting sped up, saw some of his creativity, stopping on a dime, carving out tough buckets for himself, we saw his playmaking, if it's dumping off to a guy off the roll, if it's kicking out to a shooter, and that's always been one of his better skill sets is probably his passing and his ability to make good decisions there, but you see it in a different way when he's that primary ball handler for a game. And I think it was just an interesting insight into what he can be because he did just turn 20. And to me, it's always been with Okoro, 3 and D is the role. 3 and D is the role. And it's going to come down to can he knock down the shot? And yeah, there are a lot of guys in the modern NBA who can handle a little bit and who can do some stuff out of the pick and roll. And I'm not going to say that he has 
obviously an insane ceiling there because you still don't have the established pull-up jumper and that is what you need and that's going to be what defines Okoro's career across the board it's just can you hit 36 percent of your threes but I thought that was really impressive but really no matter what his role is and what he can become he's going to swing what the Cavs can be as a team because where I'll, I love what the Timberwolves have, I think the Cavs have a lot of really good stuff going on too. I think you have your star point guard of the future in Garland. I think you have a great two-way center in Jared Allen. I think that in Sexton, you have a guy who, whether it's as that off guard, whether it's as that six man, is a guy you probably want to keep around because he is a phenomenally talented scorer of the basketball. But this team still has some really glaring holes on the wings. And they're the worst three-point shooting team in the league right now. They're dead last in three-pointers made. They're 29th in three-point percentage. That team's going to need some shooting. And right now, Okora was 29.5% from deep. And so that's an area in which he needs to take massive strides. And if he can't, the Cavs aren't going to become what they theoretically could be. And they're going to need an impact defender on the wing. Their defense has not been the more problematic of their two sides of the ball this year. But when you're starting a guy alongside the Sexton Garland backcourt, you need impact defenders elsewhere. And that's what we expected Okora to be. But he's a rookie and obviously hasn't been at the level that maybe you would have expected. But rookies just tend to take time to catch up. So it remains to be seen if he can really do that. But I think we've already seen how he swings results. He's been so much better in wins this year for the Cavs, shooting 48% from the field, 36% from three, versus in losses, 41% from the field, 27% from three. And I'm just fascinated by him because... He does some stuff that you really should like. I think the passing is a good skill set to have that just shows a guy is able to contribute to winning in multiple ways. He's a good cutter, but there's still such a massive question with the shot. And I think it's important to remember that we're not talking about some 6'7", 6'8", wing here. Okoro is 6'5", and it may be that he's more of a true guard than the kind of wing prototype that we all slotted him into. And maybe he is best served with the ball in his hands. And if that's the case... Cleveland maybe isn't the spot for him because I do think he needs to be that great off-ball 3 and D player if he's going to work to maximum potential here. And I think that that's probably, probably what he is long-term, but maybe it's not. And if it's not, because maybe that means that the shot never really came along, I don't know how good of an NBA player he is, but these are all things that just remain to be determined. So I just think with the Cavs, it's about the wings and Okoro is a question mark in a way that's really interesting because it's not like Onyeka or Obi, where it feels like we haven't even seen those guys really crack the rotation yet, so it's hard to have a full-on takeaway about them. It's not like Killian Hayes, where he was hurt for so much of the year. Those guys are some of the other question marks, maybe. Okoro has been starting for almost this entire season, has been playing massive minutes, and yet it's still like there's a lot of good and there's a lot of not so good, and this is a team that needs that one swing guy to still come out of the woods, and I think it could be him, but right now I'm just fascinated. I haven't. I hadn't even thought about some of those uh, potential changes to Okoro's game, Carson. Uh, about him maybe moving as a more ball dominant player. That hadn't even crossed my mind, especially here in Cleveland. Um, I think you highlighted a lot of what Okoro's great at. I think also he's great in transition. He's a high effort guy, always looking to crash the glass. Um, I don't think he. I don't think he works here in Cleveland for a few reasons, though. Um, I don't really trust his. Like, don't get me wrong. If he is a plus defender, I think he could work anywhere, but. Like you said, it's all in that shot, and that's why I would have some question marks, Carson, about putting the ball in his hands permanently. Yes, I trust him as a playmaker um, out of the pick and roll. Until he develops a reliable three or a reliable mid-range shot, I just think it's kind of pointless. Yeah, I agree for the most part, but also that just means he's not going to be a good offensive player no matter what because I think if you're talking about taking a guy away from the ball— then he better be able to shoot, right? So when you kick it to him, he can just knock down what you're creating for him. And Okoro can't really do that. Whereas right now, even without the shot, he can get into that mid-range area, he can get downhill, and he can get some of those buckets inside and in the mid-range. And so in some ways, he can be more valuable there right now. Long-term, I agree. I don't want to take the ball out of certainly Garland's hands, not out of Sexton's hands, which is why I'm saying maybe he does go somewhere else. But you really don't think... It can work. I mean, are you comfortable writing off the shot already for a guy who's 20 years old and three months? No, I'm not. I'm not just going to write him off. We've only seen a year from him. Mm -hmm. He has so much more room to grow. And I'd also say in that mid-range, he has tremendous passing vision at finding guys who are else on the wings. It's just a shame that Cleveland is such a bad shooting team. Honestly, yeah. my issue with Okoro, dude, his shot's just ugly. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. Yeah, it's not beautiful. 
But I also don't think it's completely and utterly broken. And it's just interesting to me how we've actually seen him develop because the same question that we had about him throughout the draft process is the biggest one right now. Obviously, it's the shot, but I think he's shown some other stuff that maybe I didn't expect him to have as much. And so I don't know that I could say this has been a discouraging rookie campaign from him. I just think it's been kind of a confusing one, a mixed bag, if you will. Yeah, I I agree. And uh, it's interesting because my next takeaway, Carson, is about the Cavaliers. And mm. this, uh, this takeaway has two parts. One, um, I think by way of what the Cavaliers have done in rebuilding their team and how they've spent their recent draft picks, I think when you are in doubt, and I think the track record proves this, just take the most electrifying guard on board. And the reason I say this, maybe maybe you think that Sexton and Garland don't work together. Sexton is so much better as a pure scorer, as a six-man. I think either way, however they do it, I think Sexton and Garland could coexist. If uh, Sexton is fully plugged in on the defensive end, I think it could work. Or you move him to six-man. But the worst-case scenario for Cleveland, if they don't want to hold on to Colin Sexton because... Well, look at that. Carson made a Darius Garland video. You guys should check it out. I think Garland is so much more the supreme prospect. He's a much better passer, much better in the mid-range. I think the worst-case scenario, if you don't like Sexton, you recoup some of his value in a trade. And I think mm. Sexton would garner a young guy in a first. I mean, at least a first-round pick and something else. But as this has to do with the draft, I think the track record um, in these past few seasons, 2020, First guard off the board is Ball. Obviously, he was extremely talented, but the next two guys to go are guys who slipped in Killian Hayes and Tyrese Halliburton. I think both of those guys have pay, uh, paid off. 2019, Garland goes. That has obviously paid off. 2018, you got Sexton and then SGA, and then, you know, you have an outlier in Jerome Robinson, but he wasn't uber-talented like SGA yeah. or Sexton anyway. I just think in the draft, when it comes to it, if you don't know what to do, take the most talented guy with the ball in his hands, uh, as the Cavaliers have proven, but... As you touched on, I just like their uh, what they've done with their roster and what they're going to be able to build from here on out because of the versatility that Sexton gives them in the lineup or what value he would give them if they choose to move off of him. I think it's really interesting because obviously nothing is more important in the NBA right now than that guard who can not only create for themselves at a really high level but can elevate that, elevate that entire team offense. And we've seen that that's what everybody is gunning for, obviously. Everybody wants their Damian Lillard, their Steph Curry, their Luka Doncic, their Trey Young. It's just a matter of finding that guy. But what I always say is there's also an abundance of those prospects, and you really have to get the right guy because – there's always going to be those guys who can just get buckets, but if they can't do it highly efficiently, if they can't create for others at a high level, then maybe you're looking at a sixth man. Maybe you're looking at a guy who's not even worth cracking your rotation. And so that's, to me, always the double-edged sword. If you love a guard prospect, there's nothing better to have in the NBA right now. But if you're at 20 trying to take a guy who you think could be your lead guard, there's probably enough flaws in his game to where he's not going to be that, and you're probably just better off taking a productive 3 and D guy or a guy who can protect the rim and can roll hard on the other side. So I think that you're right about the top of the draft. There's nothing that's more valuable, but I also think sometimes teams will think, okay, we can find our guy further down, and it's like, eh, maybe just take a guy who's a little bit of a higher floor. Well, and I think when you're talking about like those pure scoring guards, we've seen those guys slip who are highly inefficient. That's why yeah. Cole Anthony was not as highly drafted as some other guys, mm -hmm. but he's proven that you know he's Ty a valuable weapon as well. Um, Tyrese Maxey too. Yeah, and uh, just makes me wonder where was Shake Milton drafted? Shake Milton was drafted second round. I'm pretty sure. I can't totally remember. All right. Well, Shake's the anomaly, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think just with, uh, you know, how loaded that 2019 class was in guard play, uh, the Cavs were stuck in that, uh, or not loaded, because uh, that was, RJ went up, the hero went as well, but I just think where the Cavs were sitting, it was a precarious position, obviously, with having Sexton gone uh, mm -hmm. to them in the year previous. That pick was justified, and I think if more teams are in that situation where you were between taking a position of need versus another really talented guard, screw it, man. Just load up in the in the backcourt. Very interesting. Okay, so let's say – I mean, when is the point where that philosophy stops? Like if the Cavs got the first overall pick this year, should they take Cade? 
it's all circumstantial. Mm-hmm. When a guy like Mobley is there on the board and uh, basketball experts like Carson Brever are telling me that he's the best prospect ever, <laughs> I'd probably take that guy. But uh-huh. I'm saying, like, if you're in the if you're in the middle of the rounds and you've already got somebody talented there, but you've got question marks on another guy, man, take that guard every time. They're just so much more valuable. And you can always bait a dumb franchise like the Chicago Bulls into overpaying for a guy who's getting buckets inefficiently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. I like that. A little bit of a broader philosophical take here. I'm going to go super specific, though, for my third one. And I'm going to talk about Ty Jerome Logan, Virginia boy, of course, favorite of yours. I think that Ty is the best player the Thunder have discovered throughout this elaborate tank experiment. And if you have watched NBA basketball over the past couple months, maybe you haven't watched the Thunder because it hasn't been all that much fun. But obviously, with Shea Gilgis-Alexander out of the mix... They have been trotting out some hilarious lineups, and we've seen Teo Maladon and Isaiah Roby and Alexej Pokusevsky and Moses Brown all get major starter minutes. We've seen Lou Dort put in a position where he can just go out there and put up 30 shots in a game, but when it comes to Teo, Roby, Poku, Moses Brown, those guys had no real NBA experience, and all of a sudden they're starting every game. But I think that Ty Jerome is another guy who, despite being a first-round pick in the 2019 draft for the Suns, didn't really get any playing time at all last year. Didn't get playing time until February 26th of this year. But I think he is the guy who has stood out the most out of that group, who has the most skills that I think translate, and who I am honestly most excited by. Since he did actually get into the mix for the Thunder in late February, he's putting up 10.5 points and 3.5 assists per game on 42% from deep. And I just think, obviously, at Virginia was a really mature guy who could captain an offense, who could score and play, make at a high level, and... We've seen that here. Awesome change in pace from Ty, I think, is my favorite thing about his game as a scorer, probably. I just think that it makes him constantly deceptive, and he can get into the little mid-range area. He shoots 44% on floaters, just controls the game well, has never really sped up. 97th percentile as a pick-and-roll scorer, Logan, which is just utterly ridiculous. Yeah, take that with a grain of salt because of the volume, but that's a hell of a skill set to have. Nothing is more important than being able to get your buckets and create for others out of the pick-and-roll, and Ty can do that. But he's also a good mover off the ball, shoots 40% on three-and-a-half catch-and-shoot threes per game, which tells you that, okay, it's not like he has to be that rigid, ball-dominant player. I think that that's plain to see. You can play him effectively at the two, and the Thunder have a lot of times this year. And he's going to compete on defense, too, of course. He's a Virginia guy. And so I just think you're looking at a really good bench point guard or I think a secondary ball handler in a starting five who, again, can be that off-ball weapon but then can also handle and create for others and is just a guy who's smart. He knows what to do. He has multiple valuable tools, and he can shoot that ball. And if you're going to shoot 40-plus percent from three, you can play anywhere. And if you're going to shoot that while also being able to get buckets out of the pick and roll and make other people better and compete on defense, you're talking about a pretty darn good NBA player. And it's been great to see because he just had such a weird rookie campaign and we barely saw him. And then he was thrown into the Chris Paul trade and it was just like, okay, what's going on with Ty Jerome? And then he didn't play for so much of this year. And now I think out of all the guys who they've thrown out there and they've seen the 2020 game from Moses Brown and they've seen the Poku explosions and I like Teo Maladon, I think that Ty is the best of the bunch. And that was something, Carson, that was just so frustrating about uh, hearing people's opinions on, like, Virginia basketball prospects. And it was just frustrating that, I don't know, man, watching Ty, you could tell he was going to be a stud. Mm -hmm. I could tell at UVA that he was going to be a beast in this league, and nobody gave him the props that he did. You laid out a lot of the reasons why, but Ty was the most important person. I'll stand by it. DeAndre Hunter was the most important player on the defensive end for Virginia. Mm Ty was so clearly the best offensive player and engine for that squad. I mean, look, Kyle Guy was a great shooter, off ball. He had a lot of big shots in the tournament. Ty was the reason that offense went, man. When they needed a tough bucket, it was Ty getting into the lane and putting up a tough mid-range shot, getting to the rack. And I'm just happy to see him flourish, man. He is... What do you think his ceiling is from what you've seen from him in the league? Do you think he could be an all-star one day? Do you think he's a reliable starter for a team? Like, what is... What does peak Ty Jerome look like? I think we're looking at a guy who can be a reliable starter and who can do a lot of things to help drive winning. I personally don't think he has that star ceiling just because of the lack of explosiveness. And I just think you have to have that transcendent skill set if you're going to be an elite player. And I don't know that he has that, 
but I think he does a lot of things well, and he's a guy who I want on my team, no question. And it's fun when you find those guys in this tank season because sometimes you get a guy who puts up big numbers, but it doesn't really matter. And then sometimes you find a guy who you look at and think, okay, you put that guy in a different situation, and he's probably turning some more heads. And I think that Ty Jerome is one of those guys. And I think it's honestly a shame that the Suns didn't get to keep him because he could have been their campaign this year. I think he's ready to do that right now. Like, that would have been really fun to see. And instead, he's just going to have to do it in the quiet darkness of Oklahoma City right now. And he's going to have to wait to get a little more attention. And people say, hey, maybe that Ty Jerome wasn't such a bad first-round pick. But it's going to happen. Well, I mean, an alternative here, too, is the Thunder already so deep at that guard spot. Maybe he gets moved again. I mean, I think they recognize that he's a valuable asset. But I just mean... Playing behind a guy like SGA, a really good defensive stud, and Lou Dort, it's just a tough, it's going to be a tough rotation to crack once they're fully healthy. But I think, I don't know, man, six man, he could really show out. Yeah. I honestly think he and SGA together would be interesting because they're both, I would say, like primarily point guards, but they're also kind of combo guards. I think that they actually are just both combo guards, really. And I think that they could kind of work together for that reason. It's just about how they work off ball, but I don't have questions about Ty off ball. I think that he's really good there. Do you have any uh, other Thunder takeaways? You know, I don't think that I could firmly say anything about any of the other guys. I mean, I like Teo. I think that I like Teo's defense a lot. I like the passing, and I think that there's a lot that's promising about his game. But outside of that, man, I just don't know what's up with Poku. Isaiah Roby, none for me, thanks. Moses Brown, it's interesting. I think that he's going to be a guy who can play in this league and can fill that, you know, simple big man role. But to me, Ty is the guy who pops out, even though he hasn't been starting, even out of this group. He's coming off the bench, but he's playing really, really well. So I'm excited about that. But the Thunder have just been fun for for me, for guys like me and you, us sick and twisted fellas who just want to see all these randos go out there because there has been no shortage of randos for them. So that's been fun. The most, the mo- <laughs> the most fun I've had uh, with Oklahoma City has been all the Neanderthals coming out and saying that Lou Dort's a future all-star because he has a few 20-point games. Lou Dort is verging on being the, one of the most overrated players in basketball right now. And I like Lou. <laughs> He's shooting 39% from the field. Yeah, I mean, the shot is just so unreliable. The scoring game is so simple. It's just straight line drives. Maybe I can bully you, head down. And I think that he's still a guy who I want on my team because of the defense and because when the shot is falling, he's really good. But uh, good grief. It's not pretty watching him play basketball. Uh, It's funny, Carson, that you bring a takeaway about Ty Jerome as uh, my next takeaway is about a ton of young guards in a single rotation. And uh, it's the Detroit Pistons, man. I just think they have one of the most underrated young guard rotations in basketball. Uh, Killian Hayes, say what you want about his scoring game. It is (laughs) underwhelming, underdeveloped, but he doesn't have a really reliable scoring back now. But the thing that's really promising, man, is he fights through contact well, and he has no reluctancy to put up that floater or the runner once he starts hitting that shot, it's over. Like, Hayes is going to have a tremendous, uh, he has tremendous peripheral vision, tremendous passing vision overall. He's great at getting into the lane. You're going to have a transcendent playmaker, which I think Killian Hayes is at the height of his game, but he's also going to have a really reliable shot in the midrange that he can turn to in that floater. His shot, obviously, um, has to come along. He's shooting 27% off the catch this season. It has been a slow start, but we see that with a lot of EuroLeague guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Luca was not shooting well in his first season off of the catch. Uh, he struggled to make that transition, as a lot of guys do. I have confidence in the shot to come along, but he's got great change of pace. He's great out of the pick and roll, and he's got great passing vision. I'll take that in a point guard with a budding floater any day. Then you've got a guy uh, like Frank Jackson, who really stepped into the rotation after Derrick Rose left town. He's got the third most bench points per game over the last 15, 14 and a half on 44% off the catch. He's great off the ball. I like him with the ball in his hands. He's got great change of pace out of the pick and roll as well. And similar to Hayes, man, Frank's a dog, dude. That mm-hmm. guy goes up. He finishes through contact. He competes on defense. He's just a guy I want in my rotation. And then they've got a guy who uh, you have been high on all season long, uh, Saban Lee, Carson. And it's just he plays fast, man. He mm-hmm. has got killer acceleration. He's got killer burst. He's great at getting into the lane. Um, he's shooting 57% off the catch on a really small sample size this year. Obviously, if that keeps up, uh, I, I really like him. We haven't seen Saban in a while. It's been hard to crack this rotation with Hayes and with Jackson, but 
they've got a really talented group here, and I don't think that I don't think that Frank and Hayes are just running up their numbers because it's garbage time. I think these guys are really both talented, and then you've got a really solid contributor in Saban Lee. I think they're short up on the uh, with their guard rotation, at least at the point spot for the next uh, couple years with Frank and Killian. Man, I love both of them. Any love for a little bit of Hamadou Diallo, who had 35 the other night? Hami's cool. Yeah. He's always interested in me just because, like, obviously such an explosive athlete. It's just about the reliability of the shot, but he's shooting the ball this year better than he really ever has previously, and he's shooting it even better in Detroit. It's never going to be a primary weapon in his game, but I don't know if he can shoot 37% from three. The guy's still only 22 years old. I'm not going to discredit him being a legit NBA guy as well. And then I really think you highlighted some important people here. I think that Killian Hayes is one of the best passing rookies we've seen in a very long time. And you said it, the scoring game is far away, but the creativity, the ability to make good decisions out of the pick and roll as a passer, like he does some special stuff there. And obviously is always going to be overshadowed by LaMelo, but I mean, there just haven't been that many rookie passers we've seen who are this good in a while. And I mean, maybe an overarching tankathon takeaway for this team, Carson. Maybe mm-hmm. the Pistons had the best draft of anybody uh, this past one. I mean, yeah, that was going to be one of my takes was that the Pistons won the draft. And I think that the reason I didn't do it is because we kind of already touched on it when we did that whole Pistons versus Magic, who would you have thing? But Sadiq Bey is making the most threes per game of any rookie ever. Isaiah Stewart has been phenomenal on the interior and has shown legitimate touch and the potential for the shot. And all these guys still have room for growth. Sadiq, maybe not as much as the other two, but he already has a skill set that makes you a very productive player in this league. So I completely agree. And then I love Saban Lee. I've talked about it before. I think that he is just a guy who controls the game well and is a really good passer too. And so they're all interested to me. Frank Jackson is another intriguing one just because I've never really gotten why Frank Jackson doesn't get more time, I guess. I always liked him in New Orleans. I've always thought that he's a guy who can get his own bucket, and I wish that maybe there were a little more playmaking. Like, personally, I don't think you're ever going to be able to really put the ball in his hands and say, okay, go run an offense. But eh, the dude's a good bench player in this league, no question in my mind, especially when he's shooting 41% from three like he is this year, and he's quick, man. So I I like me some Frank Jackson a lot. Frankie Flash, as they call him. Very fitting nickname. So I like that take, Logan. I'm going to talk about another backcourt, though. And I just mentioned how we did the comparison a few weeks ago about who would rather have the Pistons' young core or the Magic's young core. I think RJ Hampton and Cole Anthony could make for one of the strangest backcourts in the NBA going forward because they've both been balling as of late. And first of all, it's just important to lay the foundation for the uniqueness of their trajectories to get here because super prominent high school recruits, Cole Anthony, Number one guy in his class at one point, R.J. Hampton was, I believe, a fringe top five guy in his class. And then they both fell in the draft, obviously. Anthony down to 15, R.J. down to 24. But they've both been playing really well. R.J. through two games in May, putting up 17, 7, and 7.5. And Again, that's through two games, but it's been back-to-back, basically career performances. Cole had 26 in a game winner the other day. And they're both talented, But they're also both still really question marks to me, and their fit is really weird. And I want to start with RJ because I had my questions about Cole, but I think I had more questions about RJ. And it was just because the shot was not there, and I was like, okay, in transition he can be a wrecking ball, but is he going to be a good enough playmaker, and how can he really impact the game if he's not that high-level scorer without the shot? I think that what we've seen as he has ramped up that scoring is just he's explosive enough to where he can legitimately score in the half court just by getting by people with that first step or all he needs is a screen and then he just needs that tight little window and then he's by, he's got some solid change in pace too. And the playmaking, it's not extraordinary, but he can make good reads when he's collapsing a defense. I think the question is just still, how does he develop as that real pick and roll ball handler? Like when do you start making anticipatory reads and passes across your body to the corner and all this stuff that you know, really makes guys great offensive players. Maybe he never does that. And then the other thing is just punishing dudes for trying to go under with the pull-up game. And I'm still not sure about the shot. He's taking two and a half threes a game in Orlando. He's only making 29% of them. I think it looks okay mechanically. Uh, Maybe there still needs to be some reworking there. But that's going to define his game. But I think that he has enough going right now to be a productive enough NBA player because he can get downhill, he can get to the bucket, and again, when he gets in those positions, he can facilitate for others as well, but that's probably not a guy I want as a starting point guard if he doesn't have the shot, but then for Cole, 
It's about the consistency with everything. And that's honestly the same as it was in college. It's about consistency with the shot, with the decision-making, with that in-between game, with the finishing, everything. Because he's a sub-40% shooter. He's below 34% from three. He's only 36% on floaters. And this happens for rookie guards, so it's certainly not enough to write anybody off. But it's just going to be interesting because the best moments are so great. You see his athleticism. You see his strength. You see his ability to just great for himself the handle is so creative the step backs like all that stuff is awesome it's why you compared him to dame but just about seeing it more often and so i think they're both starter talents i'm not sure if it's with each other i'm not sure if they fully realize that talent but i'm not going to write off the potential the thing is they just don't really complement each other right now there are a couple sketchy shooters cole anthony's below 32 percent off the catch right now rj really doesn't have that reliable shot at all who are both kind of between being true point guards and off guards because I think that it's hard for RJ to be a true point guard without that shot. It's hard for Cole to be a true point guard with his playmaking where it is. And so I just really want to see them develop. And I think that there are some guys in Orlando who I have a clearer picture about, like Wendell Carter Jr. I'm confident, very good NBA player. Chumo Kiki, I think, ha is in a pretty straightforward mold of a good NBA player. Mo Bamba, really producing as of late. You see the offensive tools. I don't know. But with RJ and Cole, there's just still so far to go, and I just want to see how this all shakes out because I'm fascinated by it. And there are a couple guys who are producing right now for an Orlando team that, yes, has had some very ugly moments, but has also had some good moments where they scrap and they're competitive and they win a couple games that maybe they're not supposed to. And it's been fun to watch them in the post-Vooch era. I mean, I think you left out uh, Cole Anthony's best quality, uh, you know, his, inter his interview-giving ability and uh, his ability to talk mess. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Dude, I, I think the most fast. I think the most fascinating thing about Cole and RJ is just their raw intangibles right now because it is so clear. Like you said, when they are both at their best, this could be a scary tandem. RJ is a beast in transition. He is blazing quick, and the thing about it, man, I'm really high on RJ too because I think right now you see a really limited offensive game. Again, when he's at his best, he's able to get to these mid-range spots and knock down jumpers. But a lot of his shots getting to the rack are just him putting his head down and barreling downhill. Once he gets that change of pace, that silky smooth handle, like he's already got that straight line burst where he's going to be able to easily mm -hmm. get his shots and finish through contact. Um, and as for Cole, as you laid out, once he becomes more consistent with that jumper, uh, I think the passing vision is just going to come with, it's a mentality thing. He's either going to mm -hmm. develop a willingness to share the basketball or he's just going to be a really inefficient takeover guy. Either way, I think they're both valuable assets to have the uh, for the future. I want to ask you mm -hmm. this. Are you high enough on RJ to where you think the Nuggets will have any regrets about the Aaron Gordon trade? No, because Aaron Gordon is just a dream in Denver. But I think that it was painful for them to let him go, and I think that they knew that in the time, because even in his limited minutes in Denver, he had done some impressive stuff. It's just now we're seeing him actually get to play 30 minutes a game and have the ball in his hands for the majority of it, and you're seeing all that good stuff come out. But you got to do what you got to do, man. Denver's trying to win a title, and RJ's not going to help them win a title for the next few years. So I think that they had their priorities in order there. But just all this magic stuff makes me think about how stupid the Bulls are. I mean, I tweeted about this <laughs> last night, but they're 7-15 since trading for Vooch. They're 7 points per 100 worse with him on the floor. They play as basically a 500 team without him and that they do not outscore their opponents nor are they outscored by their opponents but then they play like a terrible team when Vooch is on the floor and they gave up two first and Wendell Carter Jr. for him and I thought about making one of my takeaways uh, the Bulls have had the worst rebuild in the NBA but I yeah. thought that was a little too mild for nerd sesh yeah it's just disappointing man but I gotta say I will continue to be intrigued by Mo Bamba all right I don't know how you couldn't be and I know that there are some Mo Doubters out there, and yeah, everybody should be a Mo Doubter, okay? Have healthy skepticism for everything, and we need to see a lot more defensively. We need to see more of an interior game, I think, but dude, I don't know. When the shot is falling, I mean, he can put the ball on the deck. Enough Mo Bamba talk, but this is just what's so fun about the NBA right now is not only do we have such ridiculous talent at the top, every single team has multiple guys who I am excited by, and that's just fantastic. Okay. So let's move on now to your final takeaway. Why don't you share it with the people? So my final takeaway is pretty simple. Uh, I think the Rockets have got to make decisions fast to figure out their timeline, Carson, because mm. uh, the chief reason that I say this is Christian Wood's contract comes up the same year uh, as John Wall in 23. 
And I just think Christian Wood and this young core is there's just a lot of talent I don't want to see go to waste. You've got KPJ, Tate, and Martin through 2024. You're obviously going to bring in a top rookie. Basically, what I'm saying is Houston, do everything in your power to move off of Eric Gordon or John Wall in this offseason. I don't know who's going to, who would in their right mind take that bait, but. I just don't want to see Christian Wood be put to waste here, man, in yeah. Houston and just toil away on a 20-win team for the next three years because they can't build a team around them because of their cap situation, because there's so much young talent here. And a guy like Kevin Porter Jr., who's so shifty, so good at creating his own shots with step backs. He's got great change of pace. He can fill it up, and he's a great facilitator. You've got Jay Sean Tate, one of your favorite guys, Carson. He's just a dog. He's a great defender. He's a decent three-point shooter. One of my favorite guys, man. I love KMJ. That dude mm-hmm. is eight. He's so much fun to watch. Six seven. Um, I don't know if you've heard this stat, Carson. He has blocked every single one of the uh, tallest players in the NBA. Uh, Taco wow. Fall, Boban, and uh, who's third? Is he Kristaps? Sounds right to me. I believe so, but he's got crazy bounce, and I just think all of these guys are going to develop into consistent rotation players. That's four really solid pieces and then a young rookie that's going to come into the fray. I just, if the Rockets figure out their cap situation, I think with Christian Wood on the roster, they could be a competitive team very soon. But I just don't want to see Christian Wood be put to waste, man. He's too talented. Yeah, I think that they're in an interesting spot, but I also think they have a lot of really good players to be excited about. And you mentioned K.J. Martin, Jay Sean Tate, obviously KPJ. These are guys who they have on crazy cheap contracts for multiple years. At the end of the day, how much does it matter when you still have John Wall in there? I don't know. But you're telling me that if they get Cade Cunningham in there right now, you're not thrilled about what they have going? Because I would be. I think that you have a star in Christian Wood. And I think that KPJ is at the very least one of the league's best six men. Like, this combination of scoring and playmaking just does not come through the door every day. And if he could just make 36% of his threes, I think he'd be a star, genuinely. And then you have a couple guys who do just winning stuff in Tate and KJ, and that's my last takeaway, is just that every team, if they land one of those top two guys, is going to be in a spot that I feel so good about, which I just think is awesome overall. But let's stick with the Rockets. So what do they do? How do they get out of this bind? I don't know. I mean, first step, I think, is getting off of Eric Gordon. Find mm-hmm. somebody, toss in a pick, do something, get off of that contract so you can at least bring some more talent in free agency over to Houston. I don't think you can get off of John Wall. I don't yeah. think there's anybody. Look, the Chicago Bulls are stupid. I don't even think they're dumb enough to, to make that move. Um, my thing, though, if you bring in Kate Cunningham, what do you relegate John Wall to? I don't care about John Wall. Uh, he's not going to impact any of my decisions. Like, I'm not going to hold off on taking the guy who I think is, whether it's the best player in the draft or the second best player in the draft because of John Wall, I just think don't play him if you have to. I mean, he's not going to help you win games. Just forget about him. Bring him off the bench. Yeah. I, just don't I, think about it. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. <laughs> like, yeah, it just sucks to just eat John a Wall 40 40- yeah, it sucks to just eat a $45 million a year contract, but guess what? This is the position you've put yourself in, and it's better to not have him negatively impact you on the court and just have him eat away at your books than it is to have him, I don't know, mess with Kate in any way on the court. I would just say, all right, John, sorry, you're not going to play that much. Do you think at this point, with what we've seen from Russ and Washington, they regret the move at all? No, I don't think so, because you recoup some assets, and... That's good. Like, Russ is definitely better than John Wall. And we had that debate at the beginning of the year when John Wall was making 37% of his threes and Russ was playing on a torn quad, apparently, which actually makes a lot of sense because we kept being like, Russ just looks like he's lacking explosion. He can't get all the way downhill. And he's obviously been a different player since he got fully healthy. So it makes sense that he had that torn quad. But I don't think that you regret it because you swapped one terrible contract for another one, neither of which was going to be meaningful to your success. And you got a couple assets back. That's a win. Or just one asset. What was it? Just one first? Is that what they got back with Russ? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's still a win, honestly. Because Russ doesn't mean anything for this team. Just like John Wall doesn't. So, they're in, an interesting, they're in an interesting spot. They got talent. And I'll go right into my last takeaway, which, as I mentioned, is just 
almost every team toward the bottom could have a very bright outlook if they land a top two pick, which to me means you're getting either Kate or Mobley, who I think are the superstar talents. But Rockets, you add that talent to the core that they have with Wood, KPJ, Tate, KJ Martin. I'm feeling pretty darn good about that. The Cavs, if they got Mobley to pair with Garland, Sexton, or Coral Allen, good grief. I mean, maybe it's a weird fit with Jared Allen, but I'm not too worried about fit at that point. If Okoro pans out, then I think you've got great talent at all five starting positions there. And just for a team that has been so bad in the post-LeBron era, that would be awesome. I think that the T-Wolves, we've already seen and talked about plenty why I think their future can be so bright. But they have an above-average offense in the 15 games since Dilo came back. They've been winning as of late. They've got guys who I think are only going to get a lot better. And if you add a Mobley type, if you add even a Cade who can be that primary ball handler, I think either one of those makes this team a sure thing to be a contender down the road. I think it makes them a team that will win a title at some point. The Magic, they have so many guys who I like individually. They just don't have that star talent. Like, I don't think a single one of them has that ceiling right now. Even Wendell Carter Jr., I'm not feeling great about being that star level guy. Certainly not a Cole Anthony or an RJ Hampton. I couldn't say with confidence. But you get them, a Cade Cunningham. And it feels like you're in a really good spot, especially with Isaac coming back. It's just about adding shooting on the wings at that point. And then the Thunder, you add a guy like Evan Mobley, and you have two true stars. And I think that as hideous as the Thunder have been, they were 16-19 and 19 when SGA actually played. SGA is a absolute star. I mean, this guy's putting up 50-40-80 splits and really is everything for this team when he's out there healthy. And you give him another star-level guy with that two-way impact? I don't know how you could not feel good about that. And so to me, it's like you can have every team in a position where you have your foundational pieces and it's just about rounding everything out outside of that with the exception of the Magic maybe. But I think the Rockets would have two star-level guys in Wood and whoever they bring in. I think the Cavs would have two star-level guys in Garland and whoever they bring in and some really good pieces around them. I think the Wolves would have three star-level guys in Cat. Edwards, and then whoever they bring in with some other really good players like a McDaniels, like a D'Lo, who's a great offensive player. I think the Thunder would have SGA in that guy, preferably Mobley in my opinion. So this lottery is so meaningful because this is just a great draft overall. I mean, if you get a Jalen Green or a Kaminga or a Jalen Suggs, you're probably not going to be losing a bunch of sleep at the end of the night, but maybe you will compared to what you could have gotten with the top two. And I think that we're going to see some franchises just altered and I think we're going to see the makeup of this league for the next 10 years altered by how this lottery goes down and who gets who at the top of this draft when I think the top definitely matters but I want to ask you Carson like what's the what's the cutoff point for star level talent in your opinion is it the top six with Suggs Kuminga Green and then Kai Jones like where's the cutoff point for franchise changing talent in your opinion so I don't think that I could definitively say because obviously with a draft prospect there's always so much uncertainty right I mean you can think Denny of Dia is a top five guy in the draft and then maybe his rookie year he doesn't play like that I just have so much confidence in Cade and Mobley that that's where I draw the line I think if you get one of those top two picks I feel great about where you're headed because I would put a lot of money on those guys being real star players what's your favorite landing spot for both of them I would love to see, that's a good question. Honestly, I think Cade to the T-Wolves could be pretty ridiculous. I think that we'll see Cade lean more playmaking heavy in the NBA than he did in college because in college it was so much about him just being the best player on his team in every way that not only was the best passer, but he was by so far the best scorer. In an NBA situation, I think that we see his passing shine a little bit more. And I think that in Minnesota, as that stabilizing force he could be incredible. And then Ant doesn't have to try to be that primary ball handler. He can just be that bucket getter, secondary ball handler, which I think is what he's best at. That would just be unreal. I also think that my favorite location for Mobley would probably be the T-Wolves, though. But I think that Mobley going to the Thunder would be awesome as well. Because then it's like, okay, you have your 30-something draft picks over the next eight years. Now you have something that actually matters. And now you have the foundation. I also think K to the Rockets would be amazing. I think Mobley to the Cavs. I think that across the board, <laughs> you're looking at some awesome fits. I guess the least exciting to me would be one of these guys going to the Magic just because of the track record and because they don't have that other guy who I'm already crazy excited about. They have guys who I'm just like, okay, that's interesting. 
And it just feels like they're farthest away because they just started their rebuild. I mean, they're in year one. Like, even Cole Anthony wasn't a lottery pick. So, I think that we're looking at a lot of interesting outcomes. I think, again, we're looking at a draft that is going to change the trajectory of the next decade in the NBA. And it's going to be with those top two picks more than anything else. And I can't wait to see who lands them. I completely agree. And I don't know, man. I think... I definitely think those top two guys are definitively going to change the direction of franchises, but I, there is so much talent in this lottery, man. Yeah. I think there's a lot of guys on the back half of this that could potentially change franchises. Not on not on the level of a Cade or a Mobley, but I mean, you, James Booknight, uh, Jalen Johnson, Scotty Barnes, there yeah. is, there's talent down in the lottery, man. And yeah, I, I can't wait. No, dude. I mean, we're talking about a special draft here and trust me we'll do plenty of draft content once all of the excitement of this NBA season actually comes to a close and as I said that's what we're going to be focused on going forward play in playoffs awards all that end of the season stuff that matters most but we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the teams that are just towards the bottom of the league right now because that's what we love to do here on Nerd Sesh so that is going to do it for us here today if you enjoyed this one you can always, obviously, check out our other shows. We are doing three of them a week. Might be two as summer goes on, but got lots of NBA stuff to talk about for you all. You can obviously check out our YouTube channel. Maybe you're watching here right now, but that's where we do a bunch of video breakdowns. I just did one on the most controversial NBA MVPs from 1995 to 2003. Logan has another one coming up soon that is going to be plenty cool and very exciting for all of you to see. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh to just keep plugged in with what we're doing, see some of our video graphic content from the pod there, and really just keep tabs on what's going on in the nerd sesh world. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.